Hi, it's Elahe. Before we begin the show, just a heads up that there will be some discussion of violence in the context of protests in Iran. So keep that in mind as you choose where and with whom you listen. Okay, here's today's show. Um, voice, voice message one, male, talking to me from Tehran. Salam, John, update jadid dashte bashin ke Voice 2, audio, mother, 7.40 p.m. Iran time. So this is a very long voice message from the source um, telling me about um, all these insane things that he's been witnessing. Life on the ground is extremely difficult. This is Sana Mahuzi. She's a journalist based in London, and she's been reporting on protests in Iran for The Post. They are two months plus into one of the most serious anti-government uprisings the country has witnessed in the past 43 years. The number of killings are increasing, the number of crackdowns is increasing, the number of arrests are increasing. For weeks, Sanam has been in touch with people in Iran about what life has been like for them. These are conversations we don't usually get to hear in Western news media, like this one in Persian between a man in his 30s and his mother. When we asked her, how do you feel as a mother? How do you feel when you see other mothers on television or if you hear the news about other mothers losing their children? How do you feel? She said... Every mother in Iran is miserable now. I need to take anti-anxiety medication just to be able to get through the day and night. When my husband or kids want to leave the house, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should stop them from going. But I think to myself that if no one goes out, then how are things going to change? From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Monday, December 12th. Today, we take you inside Iran at a critical moment. Protests have rocked the country ever since Masa Amini's death in the custody of the so-called morality police. Protests are now all over Iran. They're in major cities and rural towns. There was a nationwide labor strike. And while this uprising is led by women, all kinds of people are in the streets demanding change. The government has responded harshly. Iran has sentenced at least a dozen protesters to death. Last week, it carried out the first known execution of a protester accused of injuring an officer. On Monday, another protester was executed, this time in public, in a warning to others. They convicted him of killing two officers. The protester was hanged from a construction crane. What protesters are risking right now is enormous. To understand the stakes, 
We're bringing you the story of one family that Sanam has been speaking to. We're not identifying their names out of concern for their safety. I received the son's recordings on October 7th and the mother's recordings on October 8th. Friday, October 28th, 2022. Monday, October 31st, 12.30 a.m. Iran, Tehran. Right now, I am hearing really insane gunshots. It's really loud. When I first heard these recordings Sanam was receiving, I was astonished. They were like these real-time, daily dispatches about how life is changing in Iran. And they contain these intimate conversations between a mother and son in Farsi, or Persian, which is a language I also speak. This mother and son talk about their hopes and fears for themselves and Iran. First, I ask Sanam how difficult this kind of reporting can be. Sanam, I'm imagining there are a lot of safety concerns with speaking to people inside of Iran. There are risks for people to speak to the media, but also internet shutdowns and slowdowns. Can you just sort of lay out like how difficult it is even to get news out about Iran and you know, why we aren't using their names and, and what the communication situation is in the country. It's very, very difficult. And you can't contact them on the phone because there's so much surveillance going on. So you have to contact them from very secure sort of apps and use all sorts of protocols to talk to them. Um, you know, I hear stories here and there, even people, you know, get into trouble talking to Western media. But I speak to them on, you know, very secure kind of chats. Hmm. Can you tell me about this mother and son who are in Iran and you've been in touch with them. When did you first connect with them and, and who are they? The first time that I approached this uh, son and mother was when I was writing about how people on the ground, how Iranians are feeling on their daily lives about what's going on and about the protests. So I approached this um, son. And he he had some very interesting stories to tell me about how his life is during the day. And then his mother also I spoke to. So I've been speaking to them since basically 7th of October. And I've been keeping in touch with them, talking to them about how their daily lives have changed, how the protests have developed. Given those safety concerns you mentioned, what can you safely tell us about this mother and son? So I've been speaking with this son who's in his 30s in Tehran, and through him, I connect with his mother as well. But the internet is sometimes very, very slow, and I have to keep messaging back and forth with him to connect. And uh, But, you know, we communicate in Farsi, and sometimes I have to tell him, where did you send the message? Where is it? And, uh, you know, he, he sends me back a message saying, it's here. Did you get it? Did you receive it? If not, then I'm going to send it in another way. He is an athlete. You know, he likes to exercise. He likes to be active. 
He spends his days, um, you know, because of Corona, because of the COVID pandemic, he spent his days mostly teaching online. But since the internet shutdowns happened and the authorities have basically uh, manipulated the internet in a way that it only works certain hours throughout the day, this person has lost a lot of business. And he has a mother who is a housewife and who spends her days cooking and cleaning and taking care of her family. She doesn't really go out much, but she's following everything. So she sat down and she gave a very emotional interview and answers about how worried she is, how concerned she is when her son goes out. But at the same time, she didn't want to stop him from going out. She said if if everybody sits at home, if every mother doesn't allow her son or daughter to go out, then nothing is going to happen. So what we're really hearing is is this really window into this exchange between a mother and, and son. What did they tell you when you first spoke with them? Let, let's start with the son. What was it like in those first several weeks for him? In the beginning, he was kind of observing. You know, he was walking around, doing his usual running route, observing how people are reacting in a more calm way, like an observer, like a listener. So he says that during the day, things unfold and unravel in a very interesting way. So in the morning, basically, people go about their business because they have to feed their families, they do their work, and then towards sort of the afternoon, So you hear honking on the streets, you hear little bit loud voices on the streets, and then as it gets dark, he gives a very interesting picture. That people actually start going into the streets because you can't really identify the faces as much and people start saying death to the dictator. Slogans of women, life, freedom. Uh, You know, you hear people from the balconies, from the rooftops, you know, in different areas, in different uh, neighborhoods. You know, Sanam, I have to say it's kind of incredible hearing this because, you know, we might see this footage in the news, seeing people chant, but it's almost like you're getting this regular diary from inside of Iran. Like we get to hear the voices of people inside of the country and what this experience and living through it is like for them. So with this young man that you've been communicating with, how have the protests and just the disruption in the country impacted his life? What has it been like for him? So he told me a very interesting story about something that happened to him in late September. 
He was on his usual running route, you know, just observing what's going on, um, you know, in his area, in his neighborhood. He was wearing his normal jogging clothes. And then what happens is that he runs into a crowd of people and these people were shouting slogans and protesting. He also hears some people saying, you know, yelling and shouting Hezbollah in the background. Something that the security forces shout. And then suddenly he feels the need to get away because the security forces were trying to disperse the crowd. And what happens is that as he's running away, he gets shot in the butt. Wow, what? He's, he's, he's running. So he's on a running route. He happens upon what looks like a protest. And in the crossfire, he, he gets shot from behind. Yes, yes, he does get shot. And what he was telling me is like he was wearing a complete running gear. So anybody who saw him would realize that this guy is an athlete, is a runner. I mean, he wasn't even there to really protest. You know, he was just observing and trying to just see what's happening, like, from afar. What was he shot with? So these accounts are very difficult for journalists to verify, but what he told me is that he was shot with a non-military gun, and the bullets of these guns are plastic. But the story lines up with the accounts of human rights organizations and what kind of ammunition the security forces were using at that time. And I I actually saw a picture of his bloody clothes. So he was shot by what we think of as, you know, like a rubber bullet shotgun. But those can really hurt you, right? His injuries were serious. I mean, his injuries were painful. So that was his sort of first brush with it. And then after that experience, what did he, did he do? Did he, was he scared or did he start joining these protests? Actually, that incident kind of empowered him more. Mm. You know, he, he didn't say, oh, now that I'm shot, I don't want to go more. You know, he said... The breaking point is near in Iran. And a day will come soon that the crowds will be too large for the system to control. Mm. Mm. So this is kind of a turning point for this guy. You know, after this, he starts going out more and starts protesting more. And, And I can't imagine being a parent and watching your child not just go through that, but then have that kind of response that they're now going to go out more and more. What is his mother have to say about it all. Yeah, I mean, she says that no mother in this situation is at peace. You know, she's extremely worried. She's extremely concerned about her son. As she told me, When I saw my child in pain with blood all over his body, I felt destroyed. And, you know, she, she went on to tell me, basically, every time that he leaves the house, she's worried. She's worried when he leaves. She's worried when he comes home. She is concerned about the fact whether or not anything is going to happen to him. 
you know, she tells me that she's even worried about her husband going to work, you know, going to the market because sometimes she she hears the sounds of gunshots. She told me the few times that she did go out, she saw the anti-riot police. Um, and 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 when things got really really scary, she had to come back home. But 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 through you know through channels and through passageways. But you know what the interesting thing is? As worried as she is, as concerned as she is, she feels hope. She feels that things can actually change. And you know, the son asks her. آیا احساس ترس میکنین یا امید کدومو بیشتر تجربه میکنین در روز؟ Do you feel fear during the day or do you feel more hope? And she says, I would be lying if I said I wasn't afraid every day. But the odd thing is that my feelings of hope are somehow more dominant. Previous times when there were protests or unrest, I didn't feel this level of unity or togetherness amongst the people. The level of anger and rage against this regime is the highest that I have ever seen. Sanam, I think it's worth stepping back and and just remembering why people are so enraged and like this like this young man and and it seems fearless going out and risking their lives so yeah. so let's first talk about who is in charge of Iran what is the government structure and then how did these protests begin basically this is the islamic republic of iran where the supreme leader ayatollah khamenei is in charge of everything so the structure is that all the basically you know, fractions of the government report to the supreme leader. And the protest hasn't happened overnight because there has been oppression. There's been 43 years of oppression, 43 years of not letting people to have a voice. People don't have opportunities. People can't travel. People can't feed their families. Two years of the COVID pandemic, economic hardship, environmental problems, People don't have water. The very famous lakes in Iran are drying up. And the protests began. Massive protests have erupted in Iran after 22 year old. To Iran this evening, deadly protests sweeping across that country. After a young 22 year old woman named Massa Amini was arrested for improper hijab and died in the custody of morality police in mid September. Tonight, Protests raging across Iran over the suspicious death of 22-year-old Masa Amini while in police custody. Amini arrested last week by Iran. When Masa Amini died, what did the government, what, what's the official sort of state line about how she died and, and then how did people respond to that? Well, the government took a line to say that she had a previous illness and that's why she died. They said that she died of a heart attack and they also spoke to her family to ask them to say that she 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 had some previous medical problems, but the family didn't do that. And that made people even more furious because, you know, they were trying to hide the fact that she died in custody. And what is it about the fact that she was arrested for supposedly 
not wearing proper hijab and that she died in the custody of the so-called morality police that struck such a, a chord with people when, you know, we think about how women have been treated in the country. As I said, this just didn't happen overnight. Women have been treated really badly and unfairly for a multiple of reasons. And this this hijab story had just been, you know, increasing in the months leading up to Masa Amini's death. You know, there's things like morality police on the streets, just like taking people without the consent of their families. And this has been happening for years. And since the uh, presidency of Ibrahim Raisi last year, these things have been escalating. And, you know, the fact that a young woman died in their custody, it was just so, you know, difficult for people to stomach that it started an uprising in her native birthplace of Kurdistan. And people, you know, around the country began to support Kurdistan and it turned into this nationwide protest that you see now. A woman in Iran with no hijab chopping her hair to a cheering crowd of thousands. How has the government responded to this, you know, uprising, which it seems like is not just confined to the capital of Tehran, it's in many parts of the country. How has the government responded? They've responded very, very harshly. So I spoke to a young girl in her mid-20s, a student who was very active in the protests. She told me that the universities have become such a difficult place. And she said even the protesting in the universities is, is harder than on the streets because there's so much surveillance. They've got agents in schools. They take videos, they take photos, and then they come and they take you. So this girl, you know, she was telling me that in universities, everything is monitored, everything is surveilled, and then they get punished. Mm -hmm. And, and do we even know how many people have been arrested or how many people have been killed? You know, it's really hard to say, but according to human rights groups, there's been more than 15,000 arrests, more than 300 deaths, including more than 50 children among them. And then in early November, we heard about the first death sentence being given out to protesters for the uprising. And now we're hearing about the first executions taking place. Hmm. I'm also thinking about this, you know, this mother and son that you're speaking to who, because of their generational differences, I'm imagining, must have had very different experiences with leadership in Iran. So can you sort of unpack a bit for us what are the generational differences and similarities when it comes to these demonstrations and how that generational gap matters here or doesn't? So the generation of the mother is extremely tired. You know, they've gone through the Islamic Revolution of 79. They've gone through the Iran-Iraq War. They've gone through economic hardship. They've gone through so much. I'm not saying the generation of the son hasn't, but they're kind of more, you know, energetic and kind of more in tuned with, you know, the international world. This is the generation of a social media of Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, you know, satellite. They know what's going on around the world. They want to be a part of it. 
they want to fight for this. So when I speak to people in their 20s, even in their teenage years, I hear a lot of energy in their voice. Especially, for example, the son I spoke to, he is not letting up. You know, he's he, he's getting more and more energetic, more and more defiant. Hmm. But when I speak to the generation of the mother, I mean, as hopeful as she is, they sound tired. I mean, I can hear the exhaustion in this mother's voice. Here she's saying, I'm devastated as a mother. I just have tears running down my face all day long. And Sanam, I know you've been in touch with others inside of Iran, including women who are involved in these demonstrations. And this really is like a woman-led movement. What have some of those women told you? Throughout my reporting during the past couple of months, I spoke to a multitude of people about, you know, so many things. The women I speak to are defiant. Mm. So I spoke to this young woman in her mid-20s who's a university student. And she she didn't want to say her name because, um, you know, of fear of uh, reprisal and a fear of um, authorities. She was telling me that she has been taking off her hijab for months now. But now, you know, she just basically is defiant and she's going around the city, you know, going around cafes, sitting in cafes, going to going to university without her hijab. And she told me there are so many things happening in Iran that I don't know which which story to tell you or which story to choose from. But I am going to tell you this. Every morning I wake up, I just go out there without my hijab, either in university or on the streets, and I just protest. And I'm willing to lose everything for it. Wow. After the break, we follow up with the mother and son and what Sanam learned after a pivotal moment in the protests. Um, I wasn't able to get through to the guy uh, because of internet blocks today, because of the 40th anniversary of Massa's death, so it was very difficult to connect. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Sanam, after you first got in touch with the son, he went out again. Tell me about October 26th. What was the significance of this date in Iran? And what did this young man tell you about what he witnessed and experienced? 
So October 26 was the 40th day um, after Massa Amini's death. And this is a very significant thing in Iranian culture and in Shia culture. 40 days after somebody dies, people remember them, people kind of mourn them again. And this, this sparked one of the most serious days of the protests. Protesters chanting freedom, freedom, swarmed through the alleyways of Tehran's Grand Bazaar, which had closed for the day in solidarity. When this son told me, he told me just last night was one of the most serious protests that I've seen. I have seen other protests when I was a kid, but the son told me last night was war. He told me that he lives in part of Tehran that is usually calm and people don't like conflict because this is, you know, the middle class, that kind of affluent part of Tehran. But he told me there was not one garbage can that wasn't burned last night. Mm. And he told me that that was one of the most serious protests that he has experienced in Iran. He could feel that people were just very, very angry. What else did he say happened during these major protests? He told me that he heard gunshots. Um, he heard yelling. He heard, he heard screaming. And then he tells me that he was shot again. I was shocked. I, I, I basically just took my phone and sent him a voice message. Hey, Baba, I wanted to know what happened. I wanted to know how he is. And then he sent me a photo of his back. And then he told me that he's been shot with a non-military rubber shotgun again. Wait a minute. He first, many weeks before, was just out jogging and he was shot. And then he goes out to protest and the same thing happens to him and he's hurt, it seems. So where does this leave him now? Like, how does he respond to being shot once again and also the situation because it just seems like it's escalating and the government is cracking down harder. The son told me I have more hope than before. I don't wait for protest calls and I just go out protesting whenever I feel like it and when I know people will be out. I just go and I walk around there. He also told me about some small acts of protest that he takes. So this person, this young man, he goes on his usual jogs, usual runs every day, and he runs into people that he sees all the time. And an interesting story that he told me is that, you know, people... People write slogans on the walls and they, they write anti-government slogans on the wall. 
And he tells these people that he sees every day who usually are in charge of cleaning, you know, the area, of taking care of the area. He asks them not to clean the slogans. بعد واقعا یه جوری که مثلا با سفید اومدن میمه رو سفید کردن چارگوش مثلا just to let the slogans you know remain on the wall so for everybody who's driving by passing by for them to 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 kind of you know witness these slogans and he told me that they listen you know so so they clean it in a way that the slogans are still you know readable and still people can see بهتون میگم تلاش های غیر خوشونت آمیزم من کدوم بوده گاندیتور so kind of funny like he's laughing here and he's saying these are the sorts of non-violent protests that he does every day to get him by uh Sanam, what what about his mom the mother told me i'm still taking anti-anxiety medication to sleep because the situation in iran has gotten worse her son asked her, how do you feel about the way authorities are dealing with the protests? And she said, basically, I have the worst feeling about the government because they are ruthless and they are acting in violence. So it's making even further opposition for her, like her resolve has increased. Her resolve has increased a lot. The first time when I spoke to her and now that I speak to her, I feel the resolve in her voice even more than the beginning. She told me, I have more hope now because the number of people going out is much, much, much more. You know, and she said that basically the fact that this uprising has gone into universities and schools, she told me the children and the university students are very persistent. These students are going to follow up on the causes until the revolution reaches a point of success, she told me. You know, it's so fascinating, too, hearing this conversation between the two of them, because as you've said, it's the young people who are really the most visible and vocal, but and out in the streets, right? They're they're the ones who are so defiant, but it's this older generation that they might be home and silent and, you know, home taking anti-anxiety medication and, and worried about what's happening to their children, but their resolve is also growing. It's silent, but it's there. Absolutely. It's just very different. Sanam, when you we look at what's going on in Iran, I think a lot of people, both inside and outside the country, are asking themselves the question, is this going to lead to a fundamental change in the status quo, including, you know, up to a change in the government? Is this a revolution? Will there be a totally new government and, and leadership in charge. And just based on your reporting, what can you say about the way things are headed right now? So from the very beginning, it was very clear that people are asking for fundamental change. دلم... 
When I first started talking to the mother and son, the mother clearly said, I want them gone. I want regime change. She's saying we are suffocating. So this is the feeling that I get from the people that I speak to on the ground. You know, a lot of people have been talking about the fact that there's no leader. No, no leader with the protests. Yeah, so there's no clear leader. You know, there's no, it's not like 2009 that there was like kind of a clear sort of leader. And a lot of people are asking, where is this going? What's going to happen? Mm. You know, the next question on deck is actually this. What next? Sanam, thank you so much for sharing these stories with us. But before we we leave, I did want to ask, was there anything else that you heard from the son the last time you spoke with him? Where, where did you leave things with him and his mother? So the last time I spoke to the son... He told me of a new development, of a new situation. I could feel it. I could, I could feel his fear in his voice. So the son was telling me there's a situation now. He heard his friends and family saying that the security forces are actually entering houses. And some of his friends have told him that this has happened to them, that the security forces and agents have come into the houses where they were sleeping and they've damaged properties. They break the windows. And he was telling me that, you know, he he thinks that, oh, one night when he wakes up, they're, they're going to be standing above his bed. You know, I was so afraid that one night they come and check his phone, take his phone away from him and see our exchanges. And when I was hanging up, you know, when I was basically telling him uh, goodbye, I asked him to delete everything, every kind of exchange that we've had on multiple platforms. Sanam, thank you so much for your time. You're most welcome. Sanam Mahuzi is a reporter based in London. A big thank you to Yegane Torbati for translation help and Marian Berger for additional edits. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. If you appreciate this kind of in-depth international reporting, there is a way you can help make it happen by subscribing to The Washington Post. It's a great way to make sure we can continue to bring these stories here on Post Reports. If you're already a subscriber, thank you so much. And if you're not one yet, now is a great time to start. Check out our latest subscription deal at postreports.com offer. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.